Welcome to Pod Academy, in our series with Birkbeck University of London, in which we explore new developments in US studies through the speakers at the Rupture, Crisis and Transformation Conference. Here's conference organiser Anna Hartnell to introduce the first of the keynote speakers from the event. Chi Dimmock is a professor of English and American Studies at Yale University and her major intervention has been to think about the United States, um, particularly its literary cultures through other continents. That's the um, title of her key book. And what she's been doing in um, her work is imagining American literature not as a kind of exceptional um, literary culture but as a, a world literature. Before we hear the keynote in full, to give some context to the talk... Here's Wai Chi talking to Pod Academy's Lucy Bradley. I write about the 20th century, 19th century, 21st century. So um, I see myself as, as kind of writing across various periods, but mostly trying to make uh, connections across national boundaries. Um, and in this project, I'm trying to think about Faulkner as a voice of the defeated South in the United States and linking that to um, other defeated populations um, across space and time, um, including the defeated Native Americans um, still festering, and then the moment of defeat that Japan suffered after World War II. And why, why do you do this? Why do you look at the defeated population? Because humiliation seems to me to be a really interesting um, and in many ways um, kind of underrated emotion, and it could actually be a very non-trivial emotional bond. And I think that what's interesting about it is that it allows groups that otherwise uh, wouldn't have any connections at all to have some kind of marginal, but nonetheless, you know, not to be um, underestimated kind of connections. And what are those kind of connections? Um, It's just the sense that somebody has been there before. um, That, you know, I think that was terrible about humiliation is that you think that you are in it and that nobody else is, which is probably the case, you know, at the moment of humiliation, um, to have some historical perspective um, in this, even for an entire nation that has humiliated other populations, have suffered similar humiliations before, uh, because it's such a kind of a low common denominator. I think that it also is, tends never to go away. When they understand this history, when they're given this history, does it give them an identity that predates that history as well? Yes, it it really does. I think this is actually the best way to get people to have some sense of uh, the history of war, really. War is not especially interesting, I'm afraid, to most people because it's just one war after another, so you you just don't pay much attention. But to focus on the losing side and what the losing side is going through is actually a way that we can or see ourselves doing at some point. So it's a kind of a counterintuitive, but but nonetheless, you know, probably more commonly shared than we think entry point to world history. We never really hear the history from the side of the people who have been humiliated or lost or... It tends to be more disorganized. You know, the archives might be harder to find. They might not be as eloquent, you know, because people might not have spent time writing up the thing, you know, in a way that that winners have the luxury to do. Um, And so there's more work that has to be done, you know, to excavate that kind of material. But I think that those archives are really, you know, they really need to be preserved. 
And how does this feed into the discussion today about the new perspectives in American study, in U.S. studies? National territorial boundaries of the United States are really unhelpful in thinking about this kind of connection. So, you know, we really have to start with those territorial boundaries and think about ways in which they can be destabilized and added to uh, and think about connections that you know, put pressure on those. There's still a kind of, um, you know, belief in the United States as being exceptionalist, right? You know, that it is the one, which is true to some extent. Um, I think for Americans, but only in the sense that it's a kind of a psychological fantasy on the part of most Americans, because um, no invaders actually had been on American soil. So there's the illusion that this nation is really kind of inviolate and is kind of an exceptional uh, state, and that's simply not true. And you know, if we think about uh, the United States as the result of conquest, then you know it has so much in common with the Latin American countries. And the thing is, of itself as a conqueror, then it certainly has a lot in common with all the other previous empires in history. So you know, to think about ways in which uh, history is being repeated, you know, it's not being completely repeated, but repeated. In, to some extent, that's a very important thing for Americans to begin to to realize. Americans have no interest in, you know, they really think that everything started 200 years ago. <laughs> in fact, for a lot of my students, even the 19th century seemed so remote. So anything that can get them to have a longer look at the past would be good. We now join Wai Chi for her keynote presentation which begins with an introduction to the idea of networks within the context of U.S. studies and her own work on Faulkner. In thinking about new developments in American studies, one concept that I'd like to try out is the concept of network. Um, I hope I'm not simply being trendy, taking a word that describes the online phenomenology of the present moment and projecting it backward to the mid-20th century to a time when the internet didn't exist. Network is a tenuous term, but for that very reason, I also hope that it might be generative, pushing us in new directions that might not only destabilize the boundaries of the field, but also allow it to speak with greater urgency to the present moment. And I should be upfront about why I'm doing this. My hope today is to try to redefine Faulkner, reclaim him as a regional writer, but regional in a new sense, embracing a new set of geographical coordinates and a new set of historical references. What enables these to come together, I would further argue, is a psychology that is locally based, but also globally shareable a sense of being somehow on the wrong side of history, that different groups must have felt at different points when they have gone to battle and have been defeated. It is not a good feeling, but it's not entirely negative either. In fact, it is least negative when it is oriented outward, when it is turned into an emotional continuum a basis of connection for those who otherwise might not have much in common. This might turn out to be the most capacious and far-reaching aspect of Faulkner's thinking about the world. 
I like to call this kind of regionalism a network regionalism. So I'm redefining the term, giving it an updated theater of action, and using it to signal a departure from two other terms more often associated with Faulkner, high modernism on the one hand, and a kind of endgame insularity on the other. Unlike this too, a network regionalism is a low-key, low-bar way of reaching out, and sustainable for just that reason, in that it is marked neither by a steep emotional curve, by the violence of tragedy, nor by a fatalistic sense of ending, by the violence of everything coming to a close. Instead, it is more like a steady-state horizontal plane, going from one locale to another, translating from one to another, making the best out of the worst, and in the end, creating what, to my mind, is one of the most interesting ways of being both local and not local. But let me take a slight detour first and talk a bit about the concept of network that I'll be relying upon throughout this talk. Most of us are familiar with the work of Bruno Latour. Today, though, I'd like to call your attention to a more recent book by Lee Rainey and Barry Wellman, Network, the New Social Operating System, a study of the way social media have reshaped our patterns of association and reshaped the ways we work get information, and find support when we are in trouble. Rainey and Wellman identify a number of phenomena that most of us would recognize right away. First, the possibility of new bonds, new kinds of connections formed across long distances rather than based upon physical proximity. Secondly, as a result of that, the prevalence of what they call partial membership, affiliations, that come into play only intermittently, that are voluntary and context-based rather than fixed and institutionally given. And finally, again as a result of that, the, re the replacement of hierarchical or vertical relations by horizontal relations. I'll be using this as a general rubric to think about Faulkner as an intensely local author with a sustained global outreach. And to the three terms proposed by Rainey and Wellman, I'd like to add two more. The network that I'll be talking about is for the most part an affective network. It has to do with a form of emotionally life with what Raymond Williams, it's good to bring up a very old figure as well. Um, what Raymond Williams in the country and the city um, calls a structure of feeling that is widely distributed and widely shareable because it has to do with the experience of one of the most common um, experiences, in fact, in human history, losing out. A network of this sort is not only horizontal, but also multi-site, multi-centric, with more than one group of people participating and more than one theater of action, not necessarily going through a single centralized hub. I call this kind of network a peripheral network. I emphasize this multi-site, multi-centric processes, partly in response to Pascal Casanova's account of a network Faulkner in her hugely influential book, The World Republic of Letters. For Casanova, Faulkner is what he is, part of a global elite 
establishment because he has been accredited beyond national boundaries because he has been he has been consecrated in one particular city, Paris. What she means by consecration is this: a process that allows an author to undergo a sort of transformation. One might almost say a transmutation in the alchemical sense. The consecration of a text is the almost magical metamorphosis of an ordinary material into gold, into absolute literary value. Paris is not only the capital of the literary world; it is also, as a result, the gateway to the world market of intellectual goods, as Goethe put it, the chief place of consecration. In the world of literature, Casanova points to the translation of Faulkner into French by Maurice Edgar Quandreau, which she claims contributed significantly to his worldwide recognition, culminating in the Nobel Prize in 1949. And that prize, in turn, puts Faulkner in the most exclusive network, the most exclusive A-list, made up of the likes of Samuel Beckett. Octavia Paz, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Gaudi Nissim, all of whom had been consecrated first in Paris before ascending to the very top in Stockholm. Casanova might have a point. Still, her world republic of letters, in being so relentlessly hierarchical and centralized, might strike some of us as less a network than a panopticon. There are indeed many languages involved and many nations participating, but everyone is under the supervision of one high authority, locating at a single, unchanging metropolitan center. This paradigm seems to me to need qualification, both on factual grounds, with those French translations really that crucial, and is Paris really that central? And above all, in light of the new understanding that we now have about the nature of networks, some networks are indeed centralized and hierarchical, but they don't have to be. In fact, quite often, it is the ones that are marginal that have low bar membership that manage to survive. Just as a thought experiment, then, it is worth tracing a network on the other side of the spectrum. From the one described by Casanova, set in motion, not because of the rare instances of consecration by one high authority, but because of the all too common experience of having been brought low. A network created in this way is peripheral in a literal sense, in that it is at some distance from the center of power. Not really through what Casanova calls the Greenwich Meridian, it has no more binding power than the low common denominator of having suffered defeat. But for that very reason, it is also likely to be robustly recurring, a network that won't disappear anytime soon. Without further ado, then. Let me go directly to a moment in Faulkner that seems to point to a network of just this sort, linking the American South after the Civil War to Japan after World War II. It's from a talk that Faulkner gave at Nagano, Japan, under the Exchange of Persons program of the State Department. 
Faulkner, by the time he went in August 1955, was at a low point himself. He was a conf- he was a confirmed alcoholic, and things were so rocky that the State Department thought of cutting short the tour and sending him home. But Faulkner evidently improved under the challenge of on-site adjustment to a foreign environment. So for a period of 10 days, he was able to meet with members of the Nagona Seminar, 50 or so Japanese professors of American literature, every afternoon or evening, giving talks and interacting with them in Q&A sessions. Some of his remarks turned out to be exceptionally, if obliquely, illuminating. Anyway, this is what he says in this one entitled To the Youth of Japan. A hundred years ago, my country, the United States, was not one economy and culture, but two of them, so opposed to each other that 95 years ago they went to war against each other to test which one should prevail. My side, the South, lost that war, the battles of which were fought not on neutral ground in the waste of the ocean, but in our own homes, our gardens, our farms, as if Okinawa and Guanacanal had been not islands in the distant Pacific, but the precincts of Honshu and Hokkaido. Our land, our homes, were invited, were invaded by a conqueror who remained after we were defeated. We were not only devastated by the battles which we lost, the conqueror spent the next 10 years after our defeat and surrender, despoiling us of what little war had left. I should say right off that as Civil War history, this is pretty bad. <laughs> it is one-sided and it is reductive. Faulkner never mentioned slavery at all. The Civil War here is only a war between two incompatible regions, eternally separated by the economic and cultural differences and ending with one side triumphant over the other and trampling the other underfoot. This peculiar account, to say the least, becomes more forgivable if we remember the immediate context in which Faulkner was speaking. There is a reason, I think, why he should be overemphasizing the objection of the South is humiliation in defeat, is humiliation in being occupied. The giveaway phrase, I think, is this. The conqueror spent the next 10 years after our defeat and surrender, despoiling us of what little we had left. Why 10 years? Well, Faulkner was probably thinking less about the year 1875, 10 years after the American South surrender, but about the year 19, sorry, 1955, the year of the Nagano Seminar, 10 years after Japan surrender in World War II. And he seemed to know intuitively that even though Allied occupation had ended formally in April 1952, the psychological consequences of defeat would linger much longer. For the Japanese in 1955, what stood out the most in Faulkner's account of the American Civil War was probably this that to every war is always going to be a losing side. And it's only those who have been there who know how it feels to be there. 
reaching out to its Japanese audience on just that basis, Faulkner's regionalism is now a trans-Pacific regionalism. Its reference points are no longer familiar ones such as Boran, but four other names, Okinawa, Wellacanal, Honshu, Hokkaido. Significantly, these are not the best-known names, not the names of the two major epicenters, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but names that are far more ordinary, bringing to mind no spectacular destruction, but simply the steady state across-the-board condition of having suffered defeat. It is a deliberate choice on Faulkner's part, I think. Ordinary cities are in fact the reference points for him, rather than cities that carry enormous cultural capital like London and Paris. In his meeting with the citizens of Nagano, while trying to map his fictional terrain for this Japanese audience, he comes up with this comparison between two pairs of cities. My country lies between New Orleans and Memphis. New Orleans is the big, important city that, in my country, is like Tokyo here. That is, Nagano would be Memphis, Tokyo would be New Orleans, because Tokyo is the largest city. My country would be between Nagano and Tokyo. They, are, they were important to my work only because they were the big cities. The life in my land, the land I know, is country, it is farmland. This in and of itself seems to me a regionalist manifesto. New Orleans is the counterpart of Tokyo only on a very special map, one that leaves out New York, Chicago, and LA. And that seems to be the point. Even though Faulkner certainly mentions New York elsewhere, as in The Sound of Fury, and even though he knew LA well from working as a screenwriter in Hollywood, for this particular audience, he wants New Orleans to set the high bar for a metropolitan center. And it is with New Orleans as the high bar that he can get down to the next level, to Memphis. But even this is too much of a city for him. His country is not an urban farm country. He says, offering us a simple equation, the regional is agrarian. But even as this equation is being put forward, we shouldn't forget that there are actually two other cities, Tokyo and Nagano, also very much in the picture. This extended mapping linking the cartography of the American South to the cartography of Asia is something that Faulkner does pretty much all through his stay in Japan. It suggests that what he's working with is probably not a binary equation or binary opposition between North and South, city and country, but a much more complex network, cross-cutting and cross-referencing in a way that hasn't been done before. This network, this time around, gives us a sense of history that is far more nuanced and far less partisan than the North as conqueror and South as con conquered view of the Civil War that we saw a moment ago. 
Let me give an example of this by going back to the same meeting with the cities of Nagano. To this question now coming from the floor. The scene of soldiers drinking liqueur, which appears in the beginning of the book Soldiers Pay, made me re recall an occurrence which, erased, uh, which arose just after the end of the Pacific War. When I was standing on one, this is coming from the floor, when I was standing on one of the platforms at Nagoya, some American soldiers came along and forcibly held my neck, making me drink whiskey. They then passed the bottle among themselves, drinking from the same bottle that I had drunk from. Since considerable time had elapsed since the time that soldier's pay was written of, and since things are now quite peaceful, I don't imagine that such things happen nowadays. Could you tell me whether such scene can be seen? The remark is interesting for at least three reasons. First, the Faulkner Canyon in Japan seems to be surprisingly broad, not just on this occasion, but throughout the entire 10 days, references were regularly made, not just to the standard bearers, such as the sound of fury or absolute and absalom, but also to words like the wild palms, the intruder in the dust, and here, soldiers pay. Secondly, Faulkner is right about defeat in war as an important basis for emotional connection between the world that he knows and Japan in 1955. It is exactly that sense of humiliation that this Japanese reader was picking up on and responding to. Finally, what is even more interesting to my mind is the response to Faulkner gave, the explanation that he offered for why these American soldiers would behave in that way not one we would expect, given his earlier condemnation of occupying forces. I wouldn't say that that is typical of American soldiers. If I said that, if I said that was typical, I'd say it is probably typical of all soldiers that in this gentleman's case, these were young men who had never been this far from home before. They were in a strange country. They had been fighting in combat. Suddenly, combat was over. They were free of being afraid, and so they lost control temporarily. They wouldn't act like that always, every time. It was the relief that anyone who has been a soldier and knows what it is to be fighting when he gets over being in fighting, he's really not accountable for what he might do. To my mind, this is one of the most subtle analysis of the effects of war on the human psyche. Not about the out-of-control behavior while the fighting is going on, but about the out-of-control behavior when the fighting is over. The relaxation of tension, it seems, can also have a drastic effect on those who have been in combat. Whether or not we agree with this account, the least we can say is that with Japan as part of the analytic network, Faulkner is suddenly able to see the occupying forces in a different light, seeing them not as a triumphant force 
brutal in victory, but is a vulnerable group of individuals, barely making it through and undone by very victory. An experiential arc extending from North America to the Pacific suggests, in fact, that there are no victories in war. No one wins. We all lose in one way or another, either militarily in a public act of surrender, or less visibly by being unhinged by war, damaged by it, even if we happen to be on the winning side. This unexpected insight that winners do not, in fact, win serves as the starting point for imagining what kind of sequel could be written for the atomic bomb. And it's important to think in terms of sequels because, as Faulkner says, I don't think I have it here. Um, we can go back to a condition in which there were no wars, in which there was no bomb. We got to accept that bomb, eliminate that bomb, eliminate the war, not retrograde to a, condi to a condition before it exists. History is made up of a series of irrevocable acts. But it is not the case that each of these acts marks a dead end, a point of no return. On the contrary, it is the ongoingness of the collective narrative that gives Faulkner hope. In response to an observation from a Tokyo audience that there were new literary movements in Japan, in post-war Japan, new poetry being written, Faulkner has this to say. I think what is primary, primarily responsible for that sort of alteration in the sound, the style, the shape of work is disaster. I think I said before that it is hard to believe, but disaster seems to be good for people. If they are too successful, long, something dies. It dries up, and then they have to collapse with their own weight, which has happened with so many empires. What about the United States itself? Is it also the case that there could be a non-tragic sequel to disastrous? Faulkner seems to be gesturing in that direction as well. Here too, the desolation of defeat with things bottom out is also the place where new utopian hope begins. In fact, it is the only place where that hope can begin. And I'll add that for him, that hope can only take the form of a peripheral network, a low-key, bare minimum set of marginal connections, which is what he gives us in Epsilon Epsilon, a collective portrait of three women, two white and one black, trying the best to survive and succeeding because they are doing it on the most primitive level. Not as two white women and a negress, not as three Negroes or three whites, not even as three women, but merely as three creatures who still possess the need to eat, but took no pleasure in it, the need to sleep, but from no joy in weariness or regeneration. We grew and tended and harvested with our own hands the food we ate, made and worked 
that garden, just as we cooked and ate the food which came out of it, with no distinction among the three of us of age. It was as if we were one being, interchangeable and indiscriminate. The person who says it is Rosa, not the most sympathetic character in Absalom Absalom. And she's really talking about an unenviable way of life, but there it is. This is the regionalism that arises from the ashes of defeat to give us a glimpse of the world as it could be, a world of bare life, it is true, but one where blacks and whites could nonetheless commingle, interchangeable, and indiscriminate. This is the non-tragic sequel made possible by the American Civil War, and it is what Faulkner holds out to his audience, a wager that something like this could also happen in Japan and some other country. But what about the other devastation in the Americas, the mass extermination of the native tribes of even greater scope than slavery? Here, too, the idea that there could be a non-tragic sequel makes it easier for Faulkner to reach out to those indigenous populations and see their fate as something other than a dead end. This is what he says when asked about the origin of the word Yonapatalva, it's fictional world. Yes, it is a Chickasaw Indian word. They were the Indians that we dispossess in my country. The word means water flowing slow through the flatland, which to me was a pleasant sound, pleasant image, though the word in Chickasaw might be pleasanter to Chickasaw ear than to our ear. Is there any chance that here too there could be a new beginning? If there had been a new beginning after the American Civil War and a new beginning even after the atomic bomb in Japan, Faulkner is hopeful. At least he seems to think that his own fictional world could be one such beginning, one that he'll like to suggest is descended from Native Americans and could serve indirectly as reparation and restitution. In that case, the water flowing slow through the flatland ought to be a steadfast, life-sustaining source for his characters. But just as the sound of the word Yonepetalfa might be more pleasant to a Chickasaw ear than to his own, as he admits, the implications of such a peaceful and continually sustaining body of water might be only theoretical so far. The actual waters that we see in Faulkner's words are not like this. I'm thinking not only of the tumultuous waters in As I Lay Dying in the old man section of the wild palms, but also of the Charles River in the Sound of Fury, peaceful and swift, not goodbye, that nonetheless drowns rather than saves Quentin. What would the life-giving water flowing slow through the flatland come from? This is where a trans-Pacific network might be helpful, for what remains theoretical in Faulkner's fictional world turns out to be the most common sight in Japan, what we see and what Faulkner sees every day. He's lyrical about it. Everywhere I have been in Japan, I've been conscious always of the sound of water, or that water was flowing, 
and I have seen children along the road. They like to play in water. They sprinkle the streets, and always there's water in motion. There's the sound of it everywhere. Water is a very important part of the lives, not just to drink it, but the fact that there is water, the fountains, the wells, the wetting down the streets every morning when I walk. What links together the indigenous populations of the Americas and the Japanese in the Pacific home is a structure of feeling, an emotional bond with water, as a visual and auditory rhythm, intimately woven into the fabric of everyday life. Most of us don't have a connection to water in this way, and yet in the 21st century, the century of climate change, with more floods. More droughts, rising sea levels, and acidification of the ocean—such an emotional bond with water might be the very thing we need. Reaching back to Native Americans and reaching out to Japan, Faulkner points us towards marginal but non-trivial connections that might just save us. That was We Chai Dimmock, Faulkner Networked. Regional, Indigenous, Trans-Pacific. Speaking at Rupture, Crisis, and Transformation at Birkbeck University of London in November 2014. Pod Academy covered the whole conference, and the other podcasts in the series can be accessed on the Pod Academy website. This podcast was produced by me, Joe Barrett, with the support of Lucy Bradley. <laughs>